This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thank you for joining us on today. And welcome, as always, to those of you who are joining us for the first time. We are continuing in our Talking Shop series, which I I love to do. You know what? Let me correct that. Talking Shop. Got got to use some slang. Talking. Talking Shop. And today, uh, I've got two guests with me. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves in a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to, to mention two things. One, our 100th episode is coming up. I'll make sure to call that out when we get there. Uh, so just a quick mention of that. I'm just happy and, and proud of that, excited about it. And we'll, again, we'll promote that as we come close to it. We'll come up with something special to do for that 100th episode. Uh, but in this particular talking shop, I want to call this out today. One of the things I wanted to do, I reached out to several people that I knew that had not been in UX for a long time. People that have a vantage point to share that a lot of the other guests that I've brought on don't, they don't really, they're coming from a different angle. People who have been in UX anywhere from three months to three years have a, a set of experiences. They have challenges that some of us may have forgotten about, or we, 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 we would like to forget about them, uh, different things like that. I just love having, as I say all the time, everybody's voice on this show. Everybody has something to contribute. And for people who are newer in the discipline, even if they're just telling their story, that has weight. That has value. Not like these people who come in to UX and been in UX for five minutes and trying to become mentors for everybody. Not that stuff. We're talking about genuine voices for people who have things to say that will absolutely benefit people who are in a parallel state in their career. So that said, for that reason, I'm bringing on today two of the, the first two, I should say, of the of the newer UXers that I wanted to be a part of this special set of Talking Shop episodes. There's several people and they'll all come on uh, two by two by two. Uh, but today we're going to start off with Wilson Ty, and he's on my left, so I'm calling him out because he's on the left part of my screen, and Zach Stewart. And I'm going to have each of these gentlemen Come on, and as we always say, tell everybody who you are, introduce yourself, and then we'll get into some of the questions and and hear about UX from their perspectives today so people can hear what's on their mind and how they feel about how things are going. So, Wilson, go ahead and kick us off today. Welcome. Tell everybody who you are and why they should be paying strict attention to you during this time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Darren. Uh, It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Um, I'm I'm excited to uh, just talk shop with you guys today. Um, My name is Wilson Tai. I am a UX designer for over three years now, uh, working at a tech startup and a health tech startup as well. Um, uh, Previously, I was a graphic designer, um, and we'll get more into that. Okay, great, great. Yeah, we got to talk about transition. That's one of the things that'll be different than uh, than we talk about with some of the other folks. But Zach, uh, your story. Tell us your story, sir. Hey, thank you. Also, really excited to be here. So, well, let's see. Two years ago, I was a restaurant manager, actually, <laughs> and uh, here I am. Uh, two years later, after the pandemic, I guess I'm one of those um, transitioners or, uh, you know, a lot of, I think they're calling it the great American reshuffling now. (laughs) Uh, Definitely part of that movement, but I transitioned into tech and now I'm a UX researcher at Fly Homes. And in fact, I um, was on contract and then they offered me a salary position uh, about two weeks ago. So now I'm there full time. Congrats. All right. Let's get some congrats. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have the sound effects, right? So you're all right, glad to hear all of that. Yeah, that's great stuff. Again, folks, 
you're going to get to hear some really interesting things. And, and I, I want to also say before we start going through our standard set of questions, I talk to a lot of newer UXers and a lot of them, um, matter of fact, some of the things that, that I hear from them, things that I learned are why I ended up writing what I call the UX Job Seeker Manifesto. I want people to really, really focus in, hone in, hone in on what these folks are going to share with you today because we want you to have a nice, sober frame of mind, if you will, a realistic frame of mind. And, and I, I'm hoping that we can instill a lot of hope in a lot of new UXers today, which I think is really big and it's really missing. And they think people like me kill hope and they see me as what they like to call a gatekeeper. But I heard somebody say something recently, and I, I wanted to to uh, start to say what I heard more frequently. I'm not a gatekeeper as they think. I'm actually a gateway. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm trying to show you how to maneuver. Uh, we're not trying to keep anybody from getting anywhere. We're trying to help you to come in the, the front door instead of climbing in the window. Uh, if someone was climbing in your window, you would not like it either. Uh, here's a key, come in the front door. That's what we're trying to do. So in having these two gentlemen on today, we're hoping that we can help instill some hope in you uh, so that you don't have that. That Some of them are bitter. Uh, some of them have a strong sense of resentment. There's a, a sense of entitlement. And all those things will actually work against you. So I'm hoping, again, that that what Wilson and Zach have to say today will help us to, to help you to dispel some of that. So let's get started today with the standard talking shop questions. And of course, we'll, we can leave these at any given time if something comes up, but don't time box yourself too much. Feel free to let it rip. So we're going to start with, we started with Wilson on the intro. So we're going to start with Zach on this. You, you just mentioned that, that you uh, made the transition from being a restaurant manager. How exactly did you get into UX? What was it that sparked the change? For you. Yeah, definitely. So I've always had an interest in people and customer experience. I actually wanted to be an anthropologist for a while, took every course in my community college, and then just realized there was really no money in, in that <laughs> line of work. And I ended up shifting into film. So also art. And when I realized that all these things had kind of come together and that organizations were finally saying, listen, let's put the customer at the heart of what we build and what we design. Mm -hmm. I just when I realized that was something that was happening, because I had a server I was working with who was going to UCLA, taking these classes, and he was inspiring me every day, teaching me, like, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what we do. I couldn't, at first, I didn't believe it. I was like, there's no way organizations are actually doing this now. <laughs> and when I realized it was, <laughs> this is actually a thing, I was like, I, I want to get involved. And he started sharing, like, Nielsen Norman Group articles with me and different things. And I, I realized it was a research aspect of it. And there were so many problems that I knew were associated with our products being misaligned with what our customers expected mm -hmm. at us at, in our little group of restaurants in Brentwood, California, and like the LA area. And I ended up just actually using some of this qualitative work and <laughs> at, at my job because I keep wow. hearing practice UX where you are. And I was like, screw it. I'm yes. in a restaurant. I'm going to use it here. I'm going to talk to guests every day and I'm going to start affinity mapping. And then I'm going to pull in other managers wow. and see if we can find some patterns. And um, we actually did. And then we brought this up to upper management. We got some product changes. We saw the impact of that. And then COVID happened and <laughs> kind of wiped us out. But at that <laughs> point I was already like, this is what I'm going to do. So I went to UCLA. I took the same program. Actually, my friend was taking because I realized he was getting so much out of it and it was very holistic um, because there are so many of these like learn UX quick and, and get started. And yep. I, I definitely wanted to take my time and really understand it, but I didn't want to spend another four years <laughs> in school having three associates, <laughs> a bachelor's and, you know, I, I spent too much time in school already. Um, that said, I did make a, uh, a commitment to continue to learn UX um, from here on out in the future. So even though I'm saying I'm done with school, um, I'm always learning UX and I'm always trying to read and, and stay up on that. That's kind of a, just part of me now. It has to be. <laughs> awesome. Awesome story. And it, one of the things that stands out to me there that I want to mention before we jump over to Wilson was how that I talk about in that series I did on, so you want to be a UXer and it talked about personal traits and mindsets when a person comes into UX. I love how you talk about you, a natural you made a natural or an, an organic transition 
into the discipline. You came into knowledge, a realistic knowledge of what it is. You didn't see a report about how the salaries were great and then do the whole gold rush thing and come running over here. But you actually took the heart. You, you, you saw what the impact was. You saw what it consisted of and it drew you in. Right. That's accurate. So you have, you made a natural transition into the discipline, (laughs) which really helps you to grow and it helps you to thrive when you do that. And you didn't have any expectations per se. You didn't feel entitled. Did you? I I, I didn't hear it in your description. (laughs) It was just, let me go and do this. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's just a fantastic story. What what about you, Wilson? How did you, how did you transition into UX? What was the thing that, that happened to to (laughs) make the light bulb come on for you? To be honest, it's, it's kind of like a tough, um, thing for me to remember like the exact experience, but, um, I think because in, when I wasn't, I was like a graphic designer for a couple of years, I wasn't really too passionate about it. And I felt like the job that I had kind of stopped, uh, growing for me in my career, um, and I realized, you know, that I kind of lost that fire and that passion in myself. I want to relive that. And I stumbled across UX later on and took a bootcamp program, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and that was the way kind of how I found out about it. Yeah. And yeah. I was really um, very interested in it. I kind of, yeah, that light bulb moment just happened there. And, uh, I didn't realize there's so much more depth to the discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't, you know, realize there's so much research involved with it and like, you know, collaborating with people and really other understanding of the bigger picture of, yeah. of what's building a product, what's solving problems. And, um, yeah, I just fell in love with that. And that pushed me further to challenge myself as an introvert, um, becoming more comfortable with, you know, talking to people using the product and services that, um, you know, able to ask the right questions. That was like one of my weaknesses. And these are the things that keep pushing me and finding a community that so involved with UX as well, further kind of built my skill and knowledge as well. So that's kind of like my, my journey. No, and and that's great. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that too. So folks, uh, you heard it here first. Don't believe the trolls. Uh, I am not at war with people who went to boot camps. <laughs> I'm actually concerned for you if you went to a boot camp. And I love Wilson's story because, hey, if you went to a boot camp, you went to a boot camp. We all learned something about something at some point in our life or we went about something a way that wasn't necessarily the best way. And we didn't know. It's what we knew at the time. And then eventually, and as Wilson just mentioned, he he learned that it was bigger than what he thought it was, and there was a lot more involved. And he didn't he didn't fight against that. He made that transition. It was a transition within a transition transition, if you will, because he he came to the realization of something, and then he he embraced it, and he started to grow and go forward. So so no, I'm I'm actually big now on a, a phrase that you may have not have heard me say before post boot camp triage where there are people if you if you go to boot camp I, the the reason why I get so and I'm just passionate I'm not angry and I don't hate people that went to boot camps what I hate is people lying to people <laughs> I do hate that uh, I I do hate people who mislead folks and try to give them a false sense of of security so I'm not, I'm not upset with people who went to boot camps I just wish I could have talked to you sooner, but if you did, if you did, and I'm able to help a lot of people today, but if you did, there's always something that can be done. I, there, I know there's a bunch of stuff in my life, not coming to, to my mind right now, but there's some stuff I did. I'm like, wow, why in the world did I do it that way? Matter of fact, I'll tell you, web design. I started my own web design business in 1995. That's when I got into, into UX, and man, how much soft money did I spend on software? And I started off using goofy things. Anybody remember Microsoft front page by chance? <laughs> you know, that wasn't that garbage. It's not even, that, that thing, they buried that thing a long time ago. I, I use so many different applications. Anybody remember hot dog? No. I know some people on the show will remember there was a, like, look it up one day, the program called hot dog. Um, 
I remember there, there's just so many. I won't go down the whole list, but I eventually settled. I was afraid to use Macromedia Dreamweaver because I thought it was too fancy and I thought that I wouldn't be able to handle it. And, and so I wasn't, I was doing all these other things. And then one day I said, you know what? Take the plunge, just take the plunge. And I went and I dove in and the, the code was so clean it wasn't putting all those weird things in that front page was doing and creating a bunch of problems and, and, and making the work more, com- more complicated than it needed to be. It, it just simplified everything. It made things so beautiful. And I loved using Dreamweaver when I was doing all that design. So what I did was I, I, I took a look and, and, and other people, we all need to do this. When you take a journey, when you're learning something, Look at how efficient that journey was. You need to do personal retros. And I realized one of the things I did was, wow, I remember at the point in time in which I knew about Dreamweaver and sort of avoided it. (laughs) And and I started, I realized how much money did you spend unnecessarily? And you start to see the parallel here. How much money did I spend unnecessarily? Because I was afraid, literally afraid to dive in and use Dreamweaver. So I did NetObjects Fusion and Hot Dog and, and all these other, there's some ones I can't even remember. And if I had just taken the dive, if I had just gone in and, and, and pursued Dreamweaver, how much would I have saved? How much more efficient would I have been sooner? So Dreamweaver, even though I paid $150, something like that, for my first Dreamweaver license, I ended up spending $1,000 instead in, in the process. So you can look at it that way great stories about how the two of you got into UX building from there though. Of course, acumen is key. It's one thing to be in UX, but it's another thing to have and develop, build your acumen, your, your skill, your knowledge, and your proficiency in the discipline. Want to know we'll start with Wilson on this one. What was your, um, your journey? How have you been able to build your acumen? What different things have you tapped into? What, what's your journey been like there? Uh, so after the bootcamp, I know I realized I was missing a lot of gaps um, in my knowledge and skills. So I, I was looking towards like anything I can kind of get my hands on like YouTube videos, books, um, and eventually kind of stumble upon Debbie's YouTube channel, Debbie's community. (laughs) And then, and then your, your podcast, it really inspired me to, you know, continue with, with learning and realizing, holy crap, there's (laughs) there's a lot more, (laughs) more to, to learn. And it's not as simple as what I've been learning in at the bootcamp and, yeah, that's that's the journey to. Awesome, awesome. What what about you, Zach? Well, you know, I think um, UCLA luckily had a pretty holistic program where we did touch on, you know, what is lean UX, what is design thinking, but then also what is service design and mm-hmm. all these other. So, like, we actually did take a kind of a holistic scope and try to look into these different scenarios and like, when would you want to use like a lean design, like MVP kind of method mm-hmm. or when would you want to use something like this? I'm not a big believer in design thinking <laughs> because I've seen it skip out on UX a lot of the, or the UX research a lot of times. Yeah. Um, although I know that it's, it looks different. It could probably look different in different companies. Um, but after that, I took classes through interaction design foundation I kind of fell in love with service design and I almost wanted to be a service designer for a while. I still have a big um, passion for that. So I, I actually took Frank Spiller's um, master classes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I really liked his teachings on Interaction <laughs> Design Foundation. I figured, why not um, you know, go to him and, and actually learn a little more about service design? And I did that for about a year. And I took, I don't know, maybe 10 different master classes and workshops with him. Um, and that really helped. And I honestly kept reading and reading and reading. And I wanted to, I realized if I'm going to get into this field in 10 years from now, I want to be an expert. You know, I want to be, I really want to get into it. So let me start with the experts. Like what I, I read, um, the inmates are running the asylum. So Alan Cooper, (laughs) um, I, I tried to start with the giants and I, I wanted to learn as much as I could from them and just kind of 
figure out my own perspective from there. And I'm still kind of figuring out my own perspective. Um, I'm sure that's going to come with experience. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. Okay. Two great takes. Two great takes there. So that's that's good. Okay. Now we're going to piggyback. You get to start this one. Uh, Zach, so far in your journey, what has been your fondest memory as a UX professional? What, what, what stands out the most to you that, that uh, uh, sort of give you, I, I like to call it the warm yeah. fuzzies. Okay. So <laughs> I was really nervous about conducting an affinity workshop mm. with about 15 different stakeholders. And I had, luckily I was able to talk them into bringing aboard engineers, copywriters. We had a really diverse group and I was really excited about it, but equally nervous. Um, and I really wanted to own these insights together. So I just thought it was really important to try to bring the wider team. And it ended up just being so impactful. And people were talking to me for about a week after that, like, oh man, I got so much out of that workshop, like looking over those insights and find like clustering them together and even like discussing the different patterns we found, like just gave me a sense of ownership over like what we do and our customers and seeing everyone like it's so involved and so excited and now there's like this fire for more workshops like this and I'm able to kind of keep nice. doing it. Um, that was really exciting and, and really made me feel like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> and, um, and I'm, you know, to see the value that you're providing other departments and, and to see that kind of spread like wildfire, wildfire was like really exciting to me. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. What about you, Wilson? Uh, I'm trying to remember the, when I first, got hired um and working on a really big project i was working with kind of like no prior research done um kind mm. of very minimal information and i was presented with uh wireframes to work on mm. and that was the beginning of of that project and in my mind i was like you know straight out of a boot camp and how come we're not following the process and I'm trying to wrap my head around that <laughs> and, and eventually I was just pushing the boundaries I I didn't care for that job because I want to do things right and I want to gain that experience I want to gain that knowledge um, my product manager my hiring manager at that time didn't really see the value in, in talking to people that are using the product. Wow. Um, so <laughs> what a novel idea, talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> I talked to, so like what I did was I talked to other people in the company, like, um, as part of the team, um, more on the kind of customer success side of things. And, I was able to um, find the teachers that that were using our product, um, and and nice. was able nice. to set up interviews and set up uh, just going through kind of like an observation analysis on how they're using the product currently, and just was able to ask a bunch of questions and gain new insights. And um, I was bold enough to eventually invite that product manager and invite some of the stakeholders to these interviews to show them kind of like them kind of sitting in the background, listening on what kind of type of questions I'm asking these teachers and what kind of like observations we were able to get through just simply going through this process. And eventually I was lucky enough to get these new insights. And mm -hmm. that was like the light bulb moment for everybody that was, that was part of the process. <laughs> nice, nice. That's so it's, exciting. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's funny. And I know you folks have seen this already in your careers. It, it's like the you and UX. If you, if you don't get users involved, if you don't get user input, one of the things that people need to learn early on, because so many new UXers are focused on the tools or they're, or they're focused on the concept of research without knowing the innards of research, if you will. And, and so to be able to, to recognize that, that value, that's great, Wilson, to, to recognize that value. And in both cases, to get, your, to get people excited about different things so that you can go forward and do things the right way, as opposed to being what I like to, I've recently started calling the UX hamster, where you're just in a wheel running and, and, and patting yourself on the back because you're busy but when you get off the wheel, you really haven't gotten anywhere. <laughs> like, like the proverbial hamster <laughs> in the wheel, you can run for 10 miles 
if you had a if you had some type of a measuring device there. But truth is, when you when you get off the wheel, you get off in the same exact spot. Nothing nothing has happened. So without the without the you, without the users, we're we're not doing anything. It's 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 all speculation. So it's great to hear to hear those stories. So Wilson, we start off with you. What was the best decision you made so far? You think you've made so far as a UX professional? Well, what's what stands out to you? Best decision I've made um, was actually just finding UX as a discipline. Um, <laughs> be- before I was actually, you know, kind of lost on what my passion is. I know I was always passionate in visual design. I knew that, and it, I like to be creative. But then when I I found UX as a discipline, I realized how much I like talking to people. Mm-hmm. I like how much I like problem solving and how much learning that needs to be involved with just solving a problem and just so much work to it. And it's so rich and in depth and there's just so many different fields um, that consists of UX as well. And it's just a never ending journey for me. And I love it. Yes, yes, yes. It's fun. I'm, I'm glad you said that too, for, for those new UXers out there that are listening to this, to this episode, it's not our job to make things look pretty. That's not what we do. We're problem finders. So to build on what Wilson just said, we're problem finders and we're problem solvers. So we want to make sure that we're in the business of making sure that we're bringing value, find the problem, solve the problem, bring the value for users and for the business and for our teams as well. And a lot of people don't think about that, but we're, we're trying to drive wins for our team as well, because everything we do as a UX professional, it impacts our, it impacts us individually. It impacts mm-hmm. our teams because there's always somebody wherever you work that doesn't get it when it comes to UX. So when you get that win, you might not think about it, but there's somebody off in the distance looking at what you do. And they're trying to make a decision whether or not to get involved with you and whether or not they need you. And, and so those wins, that, that, that is huge. That's huge. So, again, not just making things look good. We're solving problems. We are bringing value for our organizations, and that, that is huge. But what about you, Zach? What, what's the best decision you feel you've made so far as a UXer? <laughs> I got to agree with Ford, man. Finding <laughs> UX, man, that was just so great. It, it, I, I definitely – Agree, but you know the best decision I made was probably not to trust my gut ever again. Um, <laughs> not not to go with my gut, but to dig and dig and dig and talk to others mm-hmm. and continue to learn. And I think I mentioned already, like my commitment that I made to to kind of just making this a lifelong journey of learning UX because I know the industry is constantly going to change, and the methods and the tools are going to change. And um, so I think that's probably been the best decision I've made. And I've noticed that the things I've been learning along the way, I, I've been, they've been useful and they've come up. So I, I know if I keep at it, it's just going to keep helping me. So um, that's probably the best decision I've made so far. Awesome. Awesome. Now we're going to flip the script. What's the biggest regret? The biggest pain point? We can, we can expand it and say that. And, and back to you, Zach, to kick this one off. Probably finding, finding the job was um, really difficult. It's hard out there. And it can be unclear what to do. Um, I got a lot of different feedback and, you know, you ask 10 people for an opinion, you get 20, (laughs) you know, and um, it can become really hard. And I I think, you know, just trusting yourself and finding your own path and also don't hide your past, but double down on that and Mm -hmm. try like, you know, I luckily had a, a story that I was able to, where I transitioned into UX and I could share that. So if you have such a story, um, you know, shine light on it, create an origin story, you yes, know, and, and yes. share that. Um, I think that's something that helped me, but man, it's, it's tough finding a job. And, and that was really hard. I, I almost, uh, fell back into restaurants for a while while looking just because, um, it took me about six to nine months of really looking and applying, um, and trying different things. Eventually I realized my resumes weren't even probably getting read because I wasn't following the uh, ATS system. You know, you learn things along the way and you keep adapting. Yep. yep. Um, and that, that definitely helped. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> that was the hardest. That was the biggest challenge. Okay. Oh, wh- what about you, Wilson? I would say not 
doing enough research on the kind of possible possible or possible education um, that I could have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a, a three-year program, but I did not finish it um, at that moment. Um, so this is for UX and UX and product design, and um, it was very new. Um, it was a very new program. Mm-hmm. They only had it for a couple of years, and they're still trying to introduce kind of a a more standard curriculum. But um, there were so many what I call um, filler classes. Uh, <laughs> these filler classes, yeah. One of them was about like future technologies. So the teacher didn't teach us anything. Um, they he he showed us just a bunch of YouTube videos every day, every class. Wow. And that was it. There's there's nothing new to learn. <laughs> One final project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and one final project was um, all right. Pick something technology related and and do something about it. And I'll try to help help you best I can uh, if I know what you're working on. So it it was a fun class in a way because it did it did push me to um, learn how to use this. game maker program mm-hmm. um it was a very simple thing that creates like these 2d sprites um and then um there were like some guides and introductions on how to use it and how to build the game mm-hmm. and it took me like a week to learn um so i did get something out of that that class but in the end it was like there's no point of that teacher being there so just taking that program it was, it was like kind of one of my biggest regret and not really it was really hard for me to learn more about the program because it's so new. I couldn't find like alumni right, um, right. that have taken the program before. Um, yeah, because there weren't alumni when I was taking the program. There was still like the third year kind of um, people that were still taking the program and it was still different because it's still kind of changing mm-hmm. along the way. So I, I quit and kind of dropped out uh, I didn't even finish my year there, even like less than a year. So that's when I found the boot camp, and then that was another regret that <laughs> I probably won't want to get into too much detail. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's it, really. Ed- education. It, it was really hard to find a decent one. Yeah, that that is a big challenge. I'm actually supposed to be doing a a, a session for Debbie about that very topic, about how to the whole how to. Uh, building on the the talk, I don't know if you folks knew about the talk I did on uh, the problem with UX education, and I and I sort of segmented a lot of different things and explained what the challenges were and why people struggle with it, and and so we're going to build on that and talk about the a method or different methods I should say that people can use to try to make decisions about what to do and how to select a better mm-hmm. school because you've got you've got personal preference. You've got because there's multiple types of of educational experiences. You've got you've got your synchronous experiences, which means you need to be present, whether it's in in present present physically or present virtually. You have asynchronous classes that you do everything on your own time, and then you have bisynchronous classes that you're. It's a mix of the two, uh, and and people don't know what preference they have. I, I went to several universities where I didn't. I had no idea. I, I didn't know what synchronous or bisynchronous or I didn't know what any of that stuff was. And, and, and I made decisions and went to schools that I should not have gone to because I hated the synchronous experience. I hated leaving school to run home to get on a camera so that I could watch a live lecture uh, only to listen to people drum on for hours about nothing. Yeah. Or watch YouTube videos, right? <laughs> um, oh, can God. I share something um, really quick? Uh, just some, some thoughts I have about like these boot camps. Go for too. it. If, if you, Go for it. If you are a student and you're stuck in one of these and you realize you're working on something that's really watered down too, because a lot of these projects, there's really no business context. There's no big problem to be solved. It's just like, let's redesign a food app or something. And that's not real UX. If that's where you're at right now, there's Harvard business case studies for you that 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 you can solve that are UX orientated. So you can actually look those up, download those, 
and dig in, and then they, they'll set up an actual scenario and a real problem for you and give you the business context and talk about what the stakeholders need and, and what the problem is. And at least that'll give you more of a real problem to chew on and to solve. And that would probably be a more rewarding um, project to work on um, if you're able to like do that. Because a lot of these projects and these boot camps right now are just not helpful and they're just so watered down. So yeah, just wanted to share that. And and it's funny you mentioned that uh, one of the things I talk about sometime is, and this comes from a lot of the people I talk to getting downloads from people. What is this experience like for you? What, what, what have been your, your challenges, things of that nature. And, and one of the things that I find and just observing people and the things they talk about in general too, just in posts on LinkedIn, that a lot of people seem to, they want a microwavable is the term I apply to it. They want a microwavable experience. They want a microwavable learning experience. They want a microwavable get a job experience and it just doesn't work if you if you do and there are microwavable learning experiences they just don't produce something that's as wholesome man check the metaphor on that uh the microwavable food is not going to be as rich for you and enriching for you as something that was cooked the old-fashioned way um yeah you get it faster but do you really want to live off a nuked food um i I know we do that that. (laughs) i know we do that sometimes But we, we have to watch that. And if you get a job, I actually told somebody once, and, and I got pursued by trolls for saying this, and, and, you know, when the dust settles, the truth is still there, and they've got to come to grips with it, is that you really don't have to be qualified to get a job. And we're going to talk about that in, in a moment. So I'm going to insert another question here, but because I love something you brought up, Zach, so I want, to, want us to talk about that for a few minutes, that you you if you're trying to get a job and – People forget it's not just about you. It's about what the company needs and it's about the UX maturity level at a company. It's about the hiring managers and what they know and how well they can evaluate talent. Because if, if they, if all of those things are on the down on a lower scale, um, it's easier for the unequipped or the unqualified person or the less qualified person to get a job because then you don't have the, the quote unquote blockade. You don't have those things that are in place that will stop you because they just want somebody to fill a seat. And people don't realize that. Um, I, I've talked to people who say that, yeah, I got a, a take home project that I got to work on a design exercise. And then I'll go back and I'll show it to them. And okay, they, they let you go home and work on something for two or three days and then come back. And and I've heard so many stories about people doing that and the company actually has been using the hiring process to get people to do free work. So they, they, they take all the stuff that you do in your design exercise and they, they, you, they tell you, you don't get the job. And then they, people have said that their work has been implemented. Companies have taken the ideas they've done during design exercises and, and implemented them without compensating the people who did the work. It, it, it's there's a lot of moving parts to the whole job thing. So that thing said, so I keep myself from going on too much of a tangent here. What, what were the big, um, I won't say we, you talked about challenges, uh, Zach, about challenges in getting that first job, but what was that? The things where, where things finally started to click when you did get that first UX job, what do you feel fell in place that helped you to have that, that time of success. I think some people would love to hear that, to hear what, what's your, what the takeaway was. Um, in terms of getting the job or in terms of um, once I had the job. Getting it. Running. Getting it. Getting it. Okay. Um, number one, communication and just talking to everybody. I went to as many conferences as I could. And what I ended up doing was um, – I had a conversation with you actually around this. I think it was in around November and I was, you know, hearing, Hey, maybe you should hide some of that UX research or just focus on the design or just focus on the research. Don't try to highlight your, your background. I kept hearing all this different advice and I talked to you and I also talked to a professor at UCLA. I just kept following up with a lot of my old professors and I was sharing with her, um, you know, I wanted to be a researcher. That was ultimately my goal, but I was having some trouble. And 
she loved your advice. And she was like, yeah, no, Zach, you need to double down on everything that you know how to do. Research is a big part of this. And you need to show that, you know, that you know that as well. Um, even if you do get a job in, in design, people want to know that you understand that research aspect of mm-hmm. it. Um, you just get so much bad advice from different people out there. And, and it it's rampant. Like I talked to like so many people on ADP list and they all gave me such terrible advice. Um, <laughs> yeah, but to get back to the story, um, this professor I followed up with eventually, um, she reached out to me and she knew somebody, a friend of hers that worked at a startup and needed nice. a job. And that's how I ended up getting it. So it was just <laughs> staying in, staying in touch following up and showing, you know, Hey, I still have this passion and I really care about this. And she saw that. And, um, nice. I think there's a lot of students who after a couple of months, it can, you know, speaking from experience, it can get hard and you might go, you know what? I'm, I don't want to follow up anymore. I've been trying for months and I haven't found a job yet. Like this isn't going to happen for me, but it can't, it just, honestly, it's a game of numbers and you have to just keep going and keep yep. trying yep. and it happens. Yep. What about you, Wilson? Uh, it took me a while. It took me about six months or so to really find my first job. Because mm-hmm. uh, without experience, um, not having a strong case study in my portfolio as well. And uh, honestly, I was really lucky. I think networking is very important for me. Yes, sir. Um, utilizing LinkedIn and just uh setting up calls with people like that are more experienced than you and just talking to you know getting myself out there talking to a lot of people um i think yeah one one of the things that i learned was uh just getting comfortable with talking to people if if you can even get an interview that's fine too if you don't get the job like going through that interview can help with that experience mm-hmm. and doing these like Many, many rounds of interviews really helped me with my interviewing skills because that's like the raw kind of experience to get, right? And um, yeah, just that's honestly, I know everyone's been saying the same thing like networking, but really that is really the key for me. It is. You're absolutely right. And in two things, networking, because both of you mentioned networking. It was the networking that actually made a difference. There's a lot of people today And you'll hear them, I'm not getting a job, I'm not getting a job, I'm not getting a job. And when I hear that Google, 300,000 people have graduated from the Google program, I would venture to say that the vast majority of them are trying to get a job in UX. That's a lot of competition for a part of the UX job market that is not that rich. It's not, there are not 300,000 entry-level UX job openings. And that's just the Google graduates. So we're not even talking about anything broader than that. And and people talk about not finding a job. And I'm finding a lot of people don't have the interviewing skills. As Zach was discussing there, Uh, they don't network um, or they do what I actually, I I almost hate to share this story, but I will because I think it will help somebody. And I talked about it earlier today at another event. So I get to explain it a little bit more now that there was somebody that I interviewed once. I got it. I got to just tell it. I interviewed somebody once and the person was, I called the person bubbly may that was, it was like a, a nickname that I gave the person in my own head that the, <laughs> the person was, and it makes you chuckle when you think about it. You can, just by me saying that you can imagine what this person was like, Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And that's all fine and dandy in general. But, and, and if you're bubbly, that's fine. I'm my, by no means if I'm telling people to not be bubbly. Matter of fact, I tell people all the time, you need to learn how to be comfortable in your own skin and be yourself. And you wouldn't realize how much that's a key to getting a job. <laughs> Being yeah. comfortable in your own skin uh, because you don't want to present one. You don't want to come into an interview and be an actor. I'm against the, the, the council where people will tell you that you need to follow a script. Don't follow a script. That makes you an actor. Mm-hmm. You want to be yourself. So, so if you're bubbly, you're just bubbly. My concern with bubbly, with the bubbly may persona, that's a persona that I have. So if somebody matches it, then, okay, I immediately start asking certain questions. Because if you're bubbly, that's fine. The question is, are you bubbly because that's overshadowing the fact that you don't bring anything to the table? 
<laughs> or are you just bubbly? Now, if a person is just bubbly, I'm fine with that, and I'll probably get a few chuckles out of that. But if you're bubbly because you want me to see how bubbly you are, and you're trying to actually cover up the fact that you bring nothing to the table, you have no personal value proposition, now that's when I resort to the bubbly May persona. That's the bubbly May persona, that you're all glitz and glamour and sparkles and rainbows and unicorns because you don't know anything else. I love your role-based persona. <laughs> I mean, it's a good persona there. Yeah, I mean, and I do personas for everybody. I automatically do it. I do it without thinking about it. And and what should I expect from this kind of person? And somebody say, well, that's stereotyping. No, it, it's based on data. And, and if somebody, again, if they're bubbly, but they have no value proposition, then their only value proposition is that they're bubbly. Well, that's not helping us get any work done, so I can't hire that person. <laughs> it's not realistic. Uh, Before you pivot to the next question, I yeah. do want to, you think I can add two more things to sure. my list of what helps you get a job? Go for it. Uh, networking is definitely key, but I, I wanted to add, um, I think another good part of, or another thing to have is that story, your own personal story. Yeah. Um, yes. like that origin story really helped me. And I actually shared out that origin story doc about a week before that professor of mine hit me up with that job. And I noticed in Slack that she shared that was a team prior to hitting me up. So I know that something about that sparked yeah. something and also asking good questions in the interview. Yes. I asked, especially this one question. And I, I really, um, think everyone should ask this, even though it's really scary. And that is, is there anything that would give you hesitancy in regards to hiring me? Yes. Because then you're actually getting some input in regards to maybe what they might uh, have some issues with. And that gives you a chance to also go, oh, well, you know, I didn't actually talk about this, which might highlight some of that. So yeah. it gives you a chance to save yourself a little bit. And it also allows you to collect some feedback in regards to what they might be thinking. Because usually that's what you don't get is the feedback. That's fantastic. Um, yes. Yeah. And two things stand out. Uh, for me on that one diffusion so if there's something there that will work against you you get to address it instead of them you mm -hmm. don't address it then they make assumptions exactly the second thing is that uh, and this is something that i think some people will might shock them a little bit it's important because not only are they interviewing you but you're interviewing them and you need it's to so understand. Easy to forget that. <laughs> yeah, very easy to forget. And people don't realize you need to find out how honest they are, because mm. that's what's going to affect you a year from now. When you, when you get another opportunity and you're trying to decide whether or not to stay, uh, especially the way in, in the midst of this the, the great resignation uh, that that we're still in, um, it's important to know and understand that your boss. I mean, you have your job. You have the work, you have your clients, and then you have your boss. And and it's the relationship with the boss and the teams. I got to throw the team in there too. The quality of your team members is key. And also, I got to throw this in there too. I've been talking about this a lot. I think this is a great time to share this, is that everybody, you mentioned ADP lists, and, and, and people know I'm not a fan of ADP lists at all. In any, the only mentoring service that I embrace where it's a service, not not when people say, hey, I'm mentoring. I'm where the, you come in, we recruit people and they we line them up and we put you in this cookie cutter and ship you off to a mentor. That's bad. The only one I, I love user wizard. And they're 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 uh that operation takes place in Europe, but they connect with people everywhere. They do fantastic things and they know what UX is. And I love how somebody called out recently, Deb, Debbie Levitt called out the fact that ADP list in particular, so I guess I am going to touch on this, ADP list, she cited and has, and has gone on record multiple times saying that she knows people who have been excellent, excellent UXers who were turned down when they applied to be mentors with ADP list and then people who bring nothing to the table who are approved. That is an automatic red flag for me. When you, when you are, and there's a lot of services out there to do this, where uh, they're recruiting agencies that only want to take in people who are more order taker oriented and, and are not that skilled. And there, there's an ongoing war against seniors. Actually, truth yeah. be told, it still goes on. So, so and when that's I, what you need is the seniors. Like that's my criteria when I go to ADP list now and I tell people, I'm like, how many years of experience do they have? Are they senior? 
okay, then you're you might be okay. <laughs> might. Otherwise, like yeah, yeah, B- big <laughs> uppercase characters and bold, you might be okay, and you you just don't know. But the thing I was going to mention is people don't realize you know where your mentor is supposed to be at work. <laughs> What a novel idea (laughs) that you go to a company where mentoring is part of the package. Somebody is going to, I just offered at the company I just went to, I offered mentoring services in a, in a group brainstorming session. I, I, we're going to have connect with me, set aside 30 minutes a week. Let's talk. Let's talk about your career. Let's see what we can do and, and talk about some intrinsic benefits. You never have to run to an ADP list or anybody else if you're getting that at your job. And I think that's key. Did you have anything to add to, to this one, Wilson? Uh, just more more about interviews and, and how Zach yeah, mentioned having a good story. So I recently went through an interview that went really well. Um, and yeah, I was telling my story of how I transitioned to UX. And um, I mentioned about one of the case studies that I worked at uh, during one of my startups um, and I didn't highlight kind of like the, uh, the impact too much. I actually highlighted more about the constraints and the challenges I had to ha- that I had to work with. Um, uh, like for example, my product manager not giving me the ability to actually talk to the users using the product and, and I had to really fight for that and they really appreciate yes. that transparency that I was, you know, telling them about it. They see my character that this is me. Like I'm, I don't hold anything back. Um, I like to do things right. So yeah, what, what Zach said and what you said there is like the story and, you know, telling that and being comfortable in your own skin is very important. Yes. And you just reminded me when you said that another reason that that piece that you, that both of you just mentioned is so key, it humanizes you. People realize at the end of the day that they're working with human beings and they want to make sure that you're coming across as a human being. When, when you come, if you come across as a caricature or some fictitious being, <laughs> the way that you present yourself, people don't want to work with that individual. And, and so when you tell your story and they can relate to your story, it, it almost like it becomes entertaining, but it humanizes you. So it makes you tangible. And when you become cognitively tangible, if I can put it that way, uh, <laughs> people like that. They like that. Uh, I, so I think we were talking about earlier in another another event that took place earlier today about the fact that there are employers, when they're interviewing you, they will count the number of times that hiring managers, people who are interviewing, count the number of times people laugh, a candidate laughs. Because they're trying to see how human you are. Hmm. They just want to see, are you willing to let, let yourself be out there? Are you comfortable? Are you candid? And then Wilson, you said, are you transparent? Cause some people are so stoic and they're so busy trying to follow a script and they're so busy trying to impress that all those other things get, get left off. I I've even told people recently, yeah. what can I do to stand out? I say, don't try. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it can complicate things. Is a lot of new, a lot of juniors have an imposter syndrome, and uh, I think it's that can kind of lead to you feeling maybe a little uncomfortable and not being as com, you know, right away. At least in the in the first for the first couple of years or, or first little while. But something I've learned is that the people who have imposter syndrome are usually the top performers. The people who overly care and, and go above and beyond. So don't worry about it if you're one of those people. Like just <laughs> relax and be comfortable. You're probably gonna end up kicking it. I mean, kicking butt. You know, um, doing really well. So um, just wanted to throw that out there too. If, if for any of those who happen to be um, maybe suffering with a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, I know people who listen to this podcast. They're gonna they're gonna realize that uh, Wilson probably just flinched when something I can't see his video when you mentioned imposter syndrome and my eyes did this. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, we're going to be doing a show to, to, uh, I actually talked about imposter syndrome during the EQ series a little bit. It's not what people think it is, but I do like what you said, even though I, I, I am of the firm belief that imposter syndrome doesn't really even exist. Uh, it's a, people are having growing pains. They're having self doubt, but imposter syndrome, no, 
No. Matter of fact, according to imposter syndrome tenets, a person can only truly have imposter syndrome if they're actually qualified. So when people say that they're having imposter syndrome, but they they know that they haven't qualified yet, it's they can't. They don't even qualify. So, but they're just doubting themselves. That's normal. That's life. Mm-hmm. We all doubt ourselves. You can be. You're starting your first NFL game. You you just signed a multi million dollar contract, and you're doubting yourself. They are doubting themselves. Olympic athletes are doubting themselves. Uh, people who just took over as the CEO of a corporation and they're addressing the company for the first time. They're doubting themselves. We all go through it. I, I will go into a room. I don't know what the rules of engagement are. I'm not necessarily doubting myself. I just don't know what the rules of engagement are. So, so I'm trying to understand the lay of the land as quickly as I can so that I can bring value. And, and it's, it's very closely related. So we go through things like that on a regular basis, but people just need to, they just need to settle, settle in. And if you don't know, you don't know. And, and, and yeah. if you know, you know, if you don't know, you don't know. And if you don't know, you will know. And those of us who know today didn't used to know. So it, it's not, it's not a big deal. And people who are fair with you and professional, when you don't know, they're not going to badger you be, because you don't know. It, it, it's, it's just, yeah. it's a fear people have and, and you don't need to worry about that. Yeah. And if you don't know everything right away, there's nothing wrong with saying, Hey, let me think about that and get back yeah, to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Works out well works out well we go you folks actually cut we covered some other questions without even without me even asking them (laughs) which is great so we're going to wrap up on this question because we're around the we're around the 56 minute mark so i think this will be a a good place for us to shift uh and, and sort of come around to the home stretch so to speak what observations about the discipline stand out to you today so this is almost like a wild card question and this one, I believe it's Zach's turn to start off with this one. All right. So what do I, what have I noticed about the industry or about the profession? Um, it's just that because it's become such a hot field and there's so many people transitioning right now because of this great reshuffling going on in America, I feel like everyone and their mom is trying to put a spin on the discipline and trying to throw at a boot camp and, don't get me wrong, um, like like you've even touched on already, there's a lot you can learn and it can be a starting point, but they uh, right now it's just being abused and it's mm-hmm. being simplified to the point where um, it's not UX, what, what a lot of people are teaching. So I, I think having to take a step back is really important and that can be hard when you're first getting started because you don't know what UX is and you're trying to learn the right thing. And so when saying, oh no, this is it, um, so, I mean, I got really lucky in the fact that, you know, UCLA, they taught service design and this and that. And um, I had people, even though they taught design thinking, they also challenged it and said, well, th- this is a scenario where nice. it might be useful and this nice. is where, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to use it. Um, and that's not really being taught right now. And I love that you and Debbie and others are going out there um, and, and trying to preach that, you know, there are standards. There Jacob Nielsen, some of these individuals, uh, Alan Cooper, we've they've been in the industry for the like as long as you have, you know, since the '90s, if not longer, and um, yeah. we should be looking to the leaders first before we um, <laughs> go to like I don't know a boot camp or whatnot. I feel like there's a lot more you can learn in a book <laughs> than you could learn in a lot of these boot camps, um, like these at least these two to like two three month ones. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's not much you can learn in two to three months. Funny thing about that, one thing I love, good UX books, and there was no misinformation in UX prior to 2011. So you can pick up practically any UX book that was written prior to that, and it still has value today. I mean, you mentioned the inmates are running the asylum. That is a lifesaver. Somebody asked a question on LinkedIn this past week. If you were, you know, a little hypothetical bit, if you were stuck on the island, you can only have one UX book, what would it be? And that was the book I selected. Because it talked about having a user-centered approach and it talked about how to manage these people at our jobs that try to really commandeer UX and turn UX into something it's not. And I like how that book talked about all of those things. It was a more all-encompassing, strategically oriented book uh, from a UX perspective, but it covered a lot more things. And not just the methods and the, and the techniques, but the, the, the actual way that we need to think in order to be successful. So that's why that, that book stands out for me, but practically any book, Jesse James Garrett, read it. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, about his book about faith never gets enough um, recognition too, because everyone always goes to yep. the inmates are running asylum, but that is a Bible on Wonderful. US. <laughs> how, to, how to do personas right. You name it. Everything's in yes. there. Um, it's a really good book too, but yeah, no. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. How about you, Wilson? Uh, there's a lot of things that stand out for me, to be honest. Um, one thing that does is I, I follow a lot of people on LinkedIn and, um, yeah, especially in, in the UX space. Right. So there's just so much drama. It's, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't understand. It's like, we, we should be helping each other. We should be growing the community. We should yep. be growing the education space. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what it's like in America. I'm pretty sure, yeah, there's like really good schools there for, for UX. But in Canada, there really aren't any. I, I don't know any. It's sad. It's like, where are we going with this in, in the future, right? And kids are the future. <laughs> Students need to learn what's right. And, we're confusing people currently and it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's just like, like, like what Darren's trying to fight for is like all this misinformation and people being misled by, by people that believes that they're mentors with a few years yeah. of experience. It's like, what the heck? Like, what the hell? <laughs> what are we doing? It's, it's, can we stop and like really try to come together? Like, Oh my God, it's just so frustrating to see this. Yeah, and I don't, and, and that's a great point that you make. I don't think it's going to happen. I actually, I went to see the Batman earlier today, and, and I had, I, 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 why can't I just sit and enjoy the movie? I, I go into this UX frame <laughs> of mine, and, and I start thinking about something, and I, I came to, uh, I'll throw this out there, see what you guys think about this. Fighting for what I call pure UX is like fighting against crime. You can only, and there was that line that, that the Batman said, he said, I've got to do something to bring hope and, and I got to do something to make a difference. I hope that I'm making a difference. And you can only, you'll never wipe crime out. It's like I left the theater, so to speak, at that moment. You can never wipe crime out. You can only hope to make things better in individual circumstances or in certain pockets. So, I, I I think it really helped me to level set there for a moment. I can only impact a few people at a time. And that's all I really ever try to do. I, I'll never be able to help just stop. I can't stop everybody from saying UX UI. I can't. I can only impact a few people at a time. And that's all I'm trying to do. So I impact a few people at a time. And then next thing you know, somebody comes right behind me and says UX UI. I don't know man, they just don't get it. And, and, and it'll be years before the light bulb comes on for some people. But I think it's the same thing. So, you know, the, the educational thing, there's a lot of bad UX schools. It's not just boot camps. I wish it were just boot camps. Uh, and boot camps actually have a great idea. They just didn't execute it the right way. And they chased after the buck. And they didn't respect the integrity of education. There's an ethics mm -hmm. associated with education. There's, there's, there, there's a pedagogy there's andragogy. Uh, that's not getting any attention at all. And that's what I'm getting my PhD in. There, there's no attention given to these things. Educational leadership is is gone completely awry. It's completely dysfunctional. Um, but again, it's not just the boot camps. There are, there are some great programs, but there are some really shoddy ones. And a lot of universities have become shaken by the boot camps and decided to start following the boot camps approach and so they actually they will say anything to get people to come to their school they will profit teach driven. well what's that it's all profit driven yeah. it is it is uh, one university that i used to go to not one of the ones i graduated from from but one i used to go to actually when you look at the description of the program they tell you on their masters of ux page that you need to be a unicorn and basically, if you're not a unicorn, you are not going to succeed. And I'm going, what? And this if, is if you said if you said T shaped, I would go, okay, maybe, yeah, you should be T shaped. But a unicorn? <laughs> but they literally say that you should be a unicorn. Why are you telling people that? And why are you? Then you're going to recruit them based on fear, yeah. and, and not on the things that you two gentlemen mentioned. You know, the passion for the discipline, the interest 
in the that's what needs to preface it needs to be there first before a person gets in or they'll operate with the wrong with the wrong things in mind so what's a challenge but folks we are going to wrap up there thank great discussion i'm thinking we gave people a lot of food for thought give people again we make incremental advances for people even just by having a discussion like this it's just dynamite stuff so again thank you zach thank you wilson for joining me on today again this is a, a the first in a series of talking shops with newer uxers to get their perspectives on things and and so uh we're out there doing a little bit more recruiting because i want to i'm going to keep doing a lot of this and i think you folks have some fantastic things to say and folks need to hear it digest it and apply it but folks, that is all the time we have for today. So it's time to sign off. This is Darren Hood, the host of the World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.